0: As you are sitting, I invite you to turn in God's holy word this morning to Matthew chapter 18. For our sermon this morning, we will be looking at Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 25, as we continue in our series on the parables of Jesus. Matthew chapter 18 beginning in verse 23 and going to the end of the chapter. Jesus says to you and to me who are gathered here today, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay... as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, This is a passage that should strike us to the very core of our being. Far too often we fail to recognize the precious truths that are revealed to us about the kingdom of heaven and the way you are and the way your citizens, we, your citizens, should act as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So, O Lord, I ask that through your spirit, in conjunction with your word this morning, you would cut us to the quick that you would rebuke us and convict us of our sin, that we may indeed go and forgive as we have been forgiven, therefore demonstrating that we truly are your children, that we truly understand and recognize how much we have been forgiven through Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. It is easier to ask for forgiveness than for permission. It's okay. God will forgive me. We have all tried to pacify our consciences and our guilt over sin with these kinds of statements. It is easy in our abiding sinfulness to presume upon the forgiveness of God. As finite and fallen creatures, we vacillate between not believing God can forgive us of our sins on one side, how could God ever forgive me for what I have done, and on the other side, treating God's forgiveness lightly and assuming and presuming upon it. And in our parable this morning, we learn about the depths of God's forgiveness as it relates to our forgiving others. And we perhaps do not think about this very often, but there is a connection. There is a connection between divine forgiveness and human forgiveness for those who claim to be Christians. The overarching point of the parable is this. Our willingness to forgive others marks us out as citizens of the kingdom of God. I'll say that again. Our willingness to forgive others marks us out as citizens of the kingdom of God. Or to put it another way, forgiveness is the atmosphere of the kingdom of heaven. Forgiveness is the atmosphere of the kingdom of heaven. Our first point this morning comes from verses 23 through 27 where we see the depths of God's forgiveness, the depths of God's forgiveness. A king decides to bring all his accounts current, and one of his servants comes before the king, and this servant owes 10,000 talents. This is roughly equivalent to $12 billion. One modern English translation actually translates it as, he owed him billions of dollars. This servant has has either made bad investments with his master's money, perhaps he's embezzled it, or or just flat out stolen it. We don't know how the servant came to be in such incredible debt. But it would take a servant in these days somewhere between 150,000 and 200,000 years to pay off such a debt or to work it off. In other words, Jesus tells us at the beginning of this parable that this servant has a great debt that is impossible to pay off. A great debt that is impossible to pay off. So the king has two options. He can either sell the servant and all that the servant has, including his family, in order to pay off the debt, something roughly akin to to modern-day bankruptcy, or the king can simply forgive the debt and write it off like credit card companies sometimes do when they write people's debts off after they declare bankruptcy. Leviticus chapter 25 verses 39 through 41 describes the first option. It says this, quote, If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner he shall serve with you until the year of jubilee then he shall go out from you he and his children with him and go back to his own clan and we read of such a situation happening in 2 Kings chapter 4 verse 1 where the wife of one of the sons of the prophets in the days of Elisha cries out to Elisha she says this your servant my husband is dead she's a widow And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. In other words, to pay off the debts that my husband owed while he was alive. So Jesus is drawing on standard Jewish practice and the the regulations of the Old Testament and telling this parable to his Jewish disciples. And when the king threatens the servant With indentured servitude or or debtor's prison, the response of the servant in verse 26 is to humble himself. The servant fell on his knees. It was a sign of humility, of bowing before one who is greater than yourself. And he implores the king. This word can also be translated as worships. And it's only used to refer to the worship of a divine being. So the servant, two actions. He he humbles himself and he begins to worship God and implore with him and plead with him. Have mercy upon me. Be patient and I will pay you everything. Now, I just explained the servant cannot pay everything. It's an impossible debt to repay. And so the servant has a misunderstanding here. He thinks he can work everything off with the king. But look at the action of the king, verse 27. Out of pity or compassion for him. Perhaps the king realizes that he has pity on this servant who thinks he can pay off such an incredible and impossible debt. Oh, you foolish one, I, I I, pity you to think that you can actually pay me everything back that you owe me. So out of pity for him and compassion, the master king releases him and forgives him of the debt. This word pity is the same word used to describe the father who has the compassion upon the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. It's the same word used for the the good Samaritan when he comes upon the beaten up man on the side of the road in Luke chapter 10. And notice that the king actually goes beyond the request of the servant. Not only will the servant be released from from having to pay him everything, but the king doesn't release him to go to try to pay everything off. The king releases him and says, you know what, I'm just going to forgive your debts. You are free to go, and you don't have to try to pay everything off. I'm going to incur it in myself. I'm going to hold myself accountable and not demand of you what you rightly Oh, me. So the king is forgiving the debt and releasing the servant out of his great mercy and compassion. The analogy of this parable to this point should be obvious to us, should it not? We are born into this world, created by God, bearing his image, born to worship and serve him, to obey him. And yet we are born Sinners. Owing to God an eternal debt, an infinite debt, which we have no hope of being able to pay off. Still, because of the work of Christ, sent because of God's great mercy and compassion upon us, our debt has been paid off by the king. Our debt has been paid off by the king, it has been forgiven. Instead of throwing us into prison, instead of condemning us to hell, God takes care of and satisfies the debt that we, his servants, rightly owe to him. And he's taking care of it in his own son, who is very God of very God, the only begotten son of God. And the debt of sin against us has been canceled, Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2. Craig Blomberg writes this quote Our sins are as enormous in God's eyes as a billion dollar debt to the government. Actually, our debt is more in the trillions now as a nation. There is no way in the world we can ever repay it. If it is to be forgiven, it must be wholly of God's magnificent grace. End quote. So in God's grace, our debt because of greed has been forgiven. In God's grace, our debt because of gluttony has been forgiven. Our debt because of pride or lust, evil words, anger, bitterness, rebellion, idolatry, blasphemy, hypocrisy, laziness, gossip, theft, lack of moderation, pornography, misplaced priorities, even breaking the speed limit has all been forgiven and wiped out. All because of the great mercy and compassion of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because of his great love towards us, which he had for us before the world was formed, in which he demonstrated by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross in the place of sinners. In your place... And in my place, we had a desperate debt, which he freely forgave. Listen to Psalm 103's amazing description of the depths of God's forgiveness. Psalm 103 says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. What a wonderful and amazing testimony to the depths of God's forgiveness. In verses twenty-eight through thirty-two, we see our second point, which is the sinfulness of our lack of forgiveness. The sinfulness of of our lack of forgiveness. The servants also had servants of his own. So this first servant, uh, who's been forgiven everything, he seems to be, at least for the purpose of the parable, in upper or middle management in this king's kingdom. And the second servant owes the first servant 100 denarii, which is roughly $800. It would take the servant roughly 100 days to pay it off at the minimum wage rate of one denarius a day in the language of verse 29 when this first servant goes and finds this other servant who owes him money the response as he's being choked by this first servant choked is the same as the first servant verse 29 his fellow servant fell down he humbles himself He falls on his knees and he implores, he pleads. It's a different word to indicate that he's not worshiping the first servant as the first servant was worshiping the king, but but he pleads with him just as the first servant did with the king. He's begging for mercy from a humble position just like the first servant did. The same two options that were before the king are now before this servant who has been forgiven of so much. Throw them in debtor's prison, or sell them and and make them become an indentured servant, or forgive the debt. And the the parable indicates that that this is is happening rather close to the other, but, but the timing between having been forgiven and then finding this other servant is real close to each other. So what you would expect from this first servant who has been forgiven everything, such an enormous debt that you would expect him to forgive this other servant of this much smaller debt. The debt of the first servant is 600,000 times larger than the debt of the second servant. Just a Put it into perspective for you. 600,000 times greater in debt. And so you would expect somebody who understood what it was to be forgiven so much, you would expect him to forgive this servant. And this is where the parable shocks us. Verse 30 He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. We should find this unimaginable, that someone who has been forgiven of an impossible debt would not be willing to forgive another of a more modest and manageable debt, a debt that actually is realistic or somewhat realistic of actually being paid off, as opposed to the $12 billion. So we should find it unimaginable that someone who's been forgiven of so much would not be willing to forgive somebody else for so little. There is no pity. There is no compassion. He who has received pity and compassion is not willing to extend it to another. No mercy. He who had not received what he rightfully deserved will now force another person to receive what they deserve. No grace, all law, all rights. And this causes a great disturbance with the other servants. They see this. This is, this is happening publicly. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They're shocked. The king must hear of this outrageous thing that has happened. And so they go and report it to the king. All that had taken place. And look at what the king calls the forgiven servant in verse 32. The master summons him and said to him, You wicked servant, what is the king's evaluation of the forgiven servant's deeds? He calls him wicked. What you have done is sinful. It's literally the word for evil. You evil person. It is sinful to not forgive others when we claim to be followers of Christ who has forgiven us of everything. I'll say that again. It is sinful to not forgive others when we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ who has forgiven us of everything. It is wicked. It is vile. It is repugnant. It's a violation of the third and sixth commandments. Not forgiving others reveals a heart that does not truly understand grace and mercy and compassion. When we know that we are offenders against a holy God who have been declared not guilty because all of that guilt was placed upon Jesus Christ and he bore the punishment for our sins on the cross, when we know that when we know that we are guilty, but because of Christ we have been pardoned of our crimes, It's an abomination to not show the same treatment to others who have offended us. If we are called to love our enemies, as we are in Matthew chapter five verses 43 through 48, if we are called to do good to our enemies, as we are in Romans chapter 12, verse 20, How much more should we show love and do good to those in our spiritual uh, family? Those who are our friends and allies in the kingdom of God. And one way we show love and do good, both within the household of God as well as to those who are outside, is to forgive one another. Friends, we've been forgiven by God for more than 600,000 sins. We've been forgiven a greater debt than $12 billion. Having experienced such forgiveness, how can we hold it back from those who sin against us? How dare we hold it back? It is wicked to not forgive others when we claim to have been forgiven of everything in Christ. Why is a lack of forgiveness an abomination to God? Verses 33 through 35 bring us to our final point. The judgment of God upon unforgiveness. The judgment of God upon unforgiveness. The king turns from expressing forgiveness to expressing wrath upon the unforgiving servant. You should have shown mercy to your servant to demonstrate that you understood the mercy you had received from me. Verse 33, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? So, the king in his anger hands the unforgiving servant over to the jailers. A more literal translation would be the torturers. And the man's going to be forced to pay off the entirety of his debt. Look at verse 34. In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. Now, what's the problem there? It's an impossible debt. The man is going to be under the hands of the jailers and the torturers forever because the debt is unrepayable. So the master king ends up doing the same thing to the wicked servant that he did to the lower servant. The punishment fits the crime. And so Jesus drives the point home to you and to me in verse 35. Just like this king, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you and me if you do not forgive your brother, implying a fellow believer, but not just fellow believers, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Forgiveness begins in the heart. It is an act of the will. I am determined that I'm not going to hold that sin against that person. I will not bring it up against them in the middle of an argument. I will not use it against them in the future to provoke or grieve them. I am determined to love that person and not hold their sin against them, even as Christ has loved me and not held my sins against me. It's not from a heart of hypocrisy like the first servant's who experienced, in a very real sense, the pity and compassion of God, but then obviously didn't actually understand it and receive it because then he goes and acts completely against such pity and compassion. Forgiveness is not done from a heart of hypocrisy, and it's not done from a heart of legalism. I have to forgive others in order to earn forgiveness from God. No, It's a willingness to forgive others because Christ has forgiven us first in Christ Jesus. And this is a constant theme in the New Testament. It's not the only place that Jesus teaches us about this connection between forgiving others and the forgiveness we have received. Mark chapter 11 verse 25, Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. So that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. The same connection there. We just said it in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts. How? As we forgive our debtors. We just recited the Apostles' Creed. What do we believe in? The forgiveness of sins. Matthew 6, 14 and 15, Jesus says, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And Paul tells the church in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiveness is the atmosphere of the kingdom of God. Unforgiveness is the atmosphere of the kingdom of Satan. An unwillingness to forgive others reveals a heart that is lacking fruits. Unforgiveness goes against the profession we make when we claim to be followers of Christ Jesus who have been forgiven of all of our sins so when we are unwilling to forgive others we are acting like an unbeliever and it's very legitimate to call our profession of faith into question and where do unbelievers end up jail torture the analogy is this is eternal punishment this is eternal condemnation For a debt that was never paid off at the cross of Christ. So an attitude and a lifestyle, a lack of willingness to forgive others, reveals a a hypocritical heart. I don't care how often you go to church. I don't care how often you claim to be a Christian. Jesus Christ tells us in his word that if you are unwilling to forgive others, he tells us that you are on the wrong path and you're actually headed for destruction. John Owen puts it this way Our forgiving of others will not procure forgiveness for ourselves. We don't forgive in order to receive forgiveness from God. But, he continues, our not forgiving of others proves that we ourselves are not forgiven. In other words, we don't forgive others in order to get forgiveness. That's legalism. We forgive others, as I've already said, because we have already been forgiven, because we have truly received and and truly understand how much we have been forgiven. And we know how much we've been forgiven. Scripture tells us that everything in Christ has been forgiven for those who believe. That is grace and mercy. And so if God can forgive Noah for drunkenness, Abraham for lying, Sarah for doubt, Jacob for showing favoritism and being a deceiver and a cheat, Moses for his disobedience, Rahab for her prostitution, Gideon for his lack of trust, Jephthah for his rash vow, Samson for his ungodly desire for ungodly women, David for his adultery and murder. If God can forgive them of all of that, who are we to withhold forgiveness when others treat us similarly or even commit a less heinous sin against us? Who are we to think and know that we know better than God? Who are we to not Follow in the footsteps of God in Christ Jesus. We are called to be like Christ. What did Christ do? He forgave. And so are we. Joseph did not withhold forgiveness from his brothers who sold him into slavery out of envy. Esau did not withhold forgiveness from Jacob who deceived Esau of his birthright and blessing. If we withhold forgiveness, we are worse off than Esau. It was not even a part of the covenant line of the people of God. Now, to be sure, some sins such as murder or adultery or abuse may be harder to forgive because some sins are more heinous than others, as the confession puts it, and they carry more damaging consequences when they are committed. Craig Blomberg writes this, quote, The process of forgiveness is often quite arduous, That means difficult. It may take a long time. It may require the help of other Christians, including counselors, where the church is blessed to have people with such training. Like everything else in between salvation and glorification, the results may only be partial. End quote. Nevertheless, we are called to forgive others when they sin against us. It may take time to work towards that, but we need to be willing to work towards forgiveness. Okay, this person has sinned against me. If it's a very heinous sin, it's going to take me some time, but I want to work towards forgiveness, and I'm willing to do that. As hard as that path may be, but if you're not even willing, if you shut it off, you show that you do not truly understand what it means to be forgiven of all of your sins in Christ Jesus. Part of being holy as God is holy is being merciful as God has been merciful to us. Being forgiving towards others as God has been forgiving towards us. But how is that possible? Especially in difficult cases such as adultery or abuse or murder. How is it possible for us to forgive? It's not in our own strength and power. It is the supernatural working of God's Holy Spirit... Within each and every one of us. It's the Holy Spirit who enables us to forgive others because our flesh is weak. And our flesh and our flesh, we do not want to forgive others. And every time we are wronged, there is this battle waged between us, between the within us, between the spirit and the flesh. And we need to cry out to God in those times: Lord, help me to forgive them. I don't want to. How can I ever forgive them, but yet I know that you call me in your word to forgive them, and I can't do it on my own, and so I need your help. Lord, help me. Give me the strength. Work in my heart so that I can forgive them. Despite my flesh not wanting to do it, and despite my flesh feeling like I cannot do it, you are stronger than my flesh. You are stronger than my sin. Oh, work it in me, Lord Jesus Christ. And so Grant Osborne sums up this parable for us this way. Quote, When one has experienced forgiveness from God, it is incumbent on us to forgive others. The forgiven must in turn be forgiving. If they refuse... They can expect to be judged in turn by God. And that is a scary thought, my friends. That is a scary thought. To think that we could possibly stand under the condemnation of God Almighty because we did not forgive others. So I ask you here today, whether in person or watching through the live stream or watching it later, Where and against whom are you harboring unforgiveness in your heart? Who is it? Who is it? Is it somebody at Carolina? Is it somebody here in this building? Is it somebody in your own family? Friends, for us who claim to be followers of Christ, do not let another day of unforgiveness go by. Don't do it. Today is the day to make amends. Today is the day to cry out to God, to ask him to help you forgive that other person. Because as long as you are unwilling to forgive, or at least to work towards forgiveness, God's indictment rests upon you. But as Blomberg said in that quote earlier, you don't have to do it alone. This is why you have a church family. We're here to help you. And so you can do it by the grace of God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, coming to God in prayer, through his word, and availing yourself of the spiritual family that God has given to you. I'll close with an incredible story that Craig Blomberg relates in his book on the parables. A Christian was visiting a woman named Mary in a home for paralyzed people in Lebanon. In the 1980s, during a civil war, a militia slaughtered 33 of her Christian relatives in one day. They gave her a chance to renounce Christ and when she didn't, they shot her and the bullet passed through her jaw and passed through her neck making her a quadriplegic. And they took a knife and they carved a cross on her chest with that knife and they left her for dead. She was found barely alive. She was taken to a hospital for medical treatment. And when this man visiting her asked how she was able to deal with all of this, here's how she responded. Quote, I have forgiven my enemies because Christ has forgiven me. And I am looking for the man who hurt me so I can tell him I forgive him. I know that nobody has done that heinous a crime to you. Have you received such forgiveness from Christ? If not, it can be yours today if you will but turn to Christ. If you will cast yourself on his pity, on his compassion and mercy. For he is full of pity and compassion and mercy. Cry out to him for the forgiveness of sins. And if you believe in your heart, you will be forgiven your sins. And he will work in you to begin the process of being able to forgive others. You no longer have to hold on to that hate to that resentment, to that bitterness, to that past, if you will cast yourself on Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. But if you have received such forgiveness in Christ, then let us go and do likewise. In the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.